could this fruit that I hold in my hand have something powerful to say to us about our faith in Christ, about what God has come to do and who we are? And if you're listening to this content, I'm holding a pomegranate. Find out today on The Deep Dive. Welcome in, everybody. 7.30 on Tuesday night for the Deep Dive, part eight of the Kings of Compromise. I'm holding a pomegranate in my hand. This fruit is all over Scripture. It's all over the temple. It's all over the priestly garments. We're going to talk all about that today. There is a beautiful truth to be seen in this fruit. We're going to talk about it in the Kings of Compromise. All right, so bad news, everyone. Um, the deep, the deep dive uh, Bible cam is not working. Uh, sad to say, I have worked on this for an hour, and I just I can't waste any more time on it. So there is no Bible cam, but not to worry because I have this. This is called the Logos Bible cam, and you know what? The Bible is the Bible, no matter how we're reading it. Some people get all worked up about the Bible being on your smartphone, or being on a tablet, or being on a computer. Look, it's the Word of God. However, you read it read it. Just get it into your spirit, right? So we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 7. We're going to go through the text and we're going to go verse by verse and look at what this chapter has to say about our faith through the text. Oh, by the way, now would be a great time to just remind you to hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on your smartphone device, I would ask for a podcast review. When you get a chance, not now, do it later. Let's go through the text in the Lagos Bible Cam, verse 1 of chapter 7, and what I'm going to do. Actually, I kind of like the Lagos Bible Cam because what we're going to do is we're going to scroll up just to remind ourselves of where chapter 6 left off. Verse 37, it says, In the fourth year, the foundation of the house was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts according to all the specifications. He was seven years in building it. Okay, so now. He was seven years in building it. That is Solomon. Solomon has been spending seven, really seven and a half or six and a half years in building the temple. And that is chapter six. That's how chapter six of first Kings ends. Now look what first, what the first verse in chapter seven says. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. Now what we're going to see right here is really intriguing because the way these two verses um, interplay is deliberate. It's showing us something. Um, I did a lot of research on the Hebrew of this text. And what you have to see is that this, and I love the ESV translation of the text because I think it kind of draws the picture out for us. Um, he finished the temple's building in seven years within the framework or the timeline of Solomon building his own house for 13 years. This is a very important contrast because as we are going to talk about yet again in this season, the seeds of Israel's downfall and Solomon's downfall are planted during his elevation, during his ascendancy. And it is a spiritual principle for us. I've been saying it. I want to repeat it today. Many times we think, 
when someone crashes and burns, we, we assume, oh, what did they get into recently? It may not have been recent. It may have been built in, baked into the cake of their, their increase and their success and their elevation to that place of notoriety. And they never dealt with it. And they plateaued for a long period of time. And then it suddenly came crashing down. Solomon is the ascendancy. Remember that map? We, we gave you that illustration of the ascendancy of Israel under King Solomon. They reached their zenith under his leadership. And then slowly but surely they descend. And then before you know it, during the reign of Manasseh and his son, the, the cliff, they come to the end of the cliff, the bottom falls out, and they are sent into the exile for 70 years. But the, the seeds of their future destruction are already sown in them right in the ascendancy here in Solomon's building. So what does it say next in the, in the second verse? It says, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Again, this is, a, uh, this is his palace. It's unpacking what he built for himself. Its length was 100 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars, and it was covered with cedar Above the chambers that were on 45 pillars, 15 in each row, there were windows in frames in three rows and windows opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had frames, square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Okay, so this is, again, like I said, detailed and potentially boring to some of you, but it's very illuminating to those of us who love Scripture. So the basic outline of 1 Kings chapter 7 is that we see 12 verses we're going to see are spent on Solomon's palace description and the rest, the other 39 verses of these 51 verses are spent on the temple furnishings. Now just add that to, what was it, 38 verses in chapter 7 of 6 describing the outward or the external and internal uh, shape and, and structure of the, of the temple. You have 38 plus 39, what is that? That is 77 verses of scripture okay now listen to this that bookend that sandwich if you will only 12 verses of solomon's palace being described i'm making a point so just bear with me so 12 verses of solomon's point uh, palace being uh described surrounded by 77 verses of the description of the temple and its furnishings this is very important for us to go into studying this text. We will get there. So he builds the force of Lebanon. The reason why it's called the force of Lebanon is because it's describing the fact that the house uh, was literally so filled with cedar. And remember, the cedar came from Lebanon that it looked like a forest. What you're going to see here is that Solomon puts cedar in the, in the temple. That's in, verse, that's in chapter six. But he loads his house with cedar. Uh, then we also are called to see that he spent seven years, seven years building the, the house of the Lord right here. That's the last phrase in chapter six, but 13 years on his own house. Okay. Something is being spoken here in the text. It's so important. Again, house of Lebanon. Uh, then look at the size of the house of Lebanon, his palace, if you will, a hundred cubits by 50 cubits. What was the temple? You got to go back to chapter six. It was 60 by 20. So Solomon's palace, 100 by 50 cubits. The temple, 60 by 20 uh, cubits. Whose is bigger? Whose house is bigger? Solomon's house. God's house is smaller than Solomon's. God's house is dwarfed by Solomon's temple. 
And then um, again, uh, the language of verse one is that he he built the Lord's house kind of like in the middle of building his own house. So so he sandwiches the building of the Lord's house with building his own palace. But scripture records his palace's description being sandwiched by, again, 77 verses of the description of the Lord's house. All this is the way that ancient scripture speaks. It's teaching us something as it describes something. And what we're going to see is, as we've been talking about in this uh, series on the deep dive, the kings of compromise, compromise happens not suddenly. It doesn't happen when you collapse. It happens on the way up. It happens progressively. The seeds of Israel's future downfall are being sown right now in Solomon's ascendancy and in his glory. By the way, he uses this palace as an armory to store weapons, which betrays trust in the Lord. The Israel's leaders were called to trust in the Lord. He was the miraculous deliverer. David won battles without an armory, without chariots and all of the glories of ancient armies. So what, what Solomon is starting to do is he's starting to adapt the policies of ancient armies by storing up shields and chariots and horses from Egypt. We've already talked about that. Uh, these shields and the weapons that Solomon stores in the house of Lebanon, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 8 says that the Babylonian army will come in and take those weapons away from the house of the forest. You are being asked to see how easy it is for godly men to become consumed with their own glory, even as they seek the glory of God. Solomon is doing something very virtuous. He's building the house of the Lord. But at the same time, he is giving way more attention to his house. And so I want you to see how on the way up in his life, he actually sowed the seeds of compromise that would lead to the downfall of Israel. Where does compromise live? Compromise comes and sows seed in your life, even as you are growing. Be careful of this. It's why we are called as Christians to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, to, dis to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to die with Christ daily so that these seeds of compromise don't get a chance to take root in our hearts. Because if we don't, then even in the sustained residual season of blessing, my residual means, and I think that America is in a residual blessing season, that when we are young in the Lord and we give our lives to him and we devote our lives to him, we pray, we read our scriptures, we're, you know, we're just hungry for him. Well, there's a residual blessing to that. It's like the wave of a sea. The wave comes, crashes, and then the residual water is there for a while, and then it kind of s slowly retreats back into the sea. But you don't see the dry sand for quite some time. That's called the residual blessings or the residual effect of the wave. That's how God's blessings work. But then if we don't take care of these seeds of compromise in our lives, sudden the sudden downfall will just be plastered with the outgrowth of that compromise, the outgrowth of those fleshly things that we let start to germinate in our spirits. I hope you're catching this because this is why I, I felt the Lord say, call it the kings of compromise because Solomon is like the last, the last um, bastion of greatness for Israel. And then it will do like this stock movement on a decline on a bear market like the graph it'll have little peaks like hezekiah and josiah and joash but ultimately it would just be descending slowly as god's people continue to foster the seeds of compromise in their lives and then the ultimate end is a picture of destruction that was predicated and moved along if you will on 
not taking care of the things that they should have taken care of when they were growing in Christ. Now, do I say this to depress you or discourage you? No, I say this because we're called in Romans chapter 12, verse 4, to regard these things as warnings for us, right? These things are, uh, sorry, not, not Romans chapter 12. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is also what I love about the Lagos Bible cam is that I can go right to it real quickly. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this in verse six, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Again, notice how the destruction of Israel is in a single day, but their indulgence were over many days. Again, the seeds of destruction are sown over the course of a lifetime. And when we see the collapse, we're seeing those seeds come to fruition. Verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then again, the promise, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, now, all that is to say this. We don't read these texts and, and, and alert you to these warnings to depress you. Like this, this graph should not depress you. It should warn you and encourage you that number one, you are not doing Christianity on your own. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you to help you, to empower you, to sanctify you, to purify you, and to cause you to obey. Number two, God's grace is always greater than our sin. But at the same time, I have seen many Christians fall. I've seen many pastors fall, many leaders, many celebrity Christians fall. And it doesn't happen overnight. And God does not want this for you. And if you fall, there is grace. Yes, I get it. There is grace if you fall. But how much better is it not to fall? <laughs> so if we go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, like the, the warning there is, you know, take heed. Don't think you're all that. Humility understanding this could happen to you. And this is why we are reading about Solomon this week. Uh, I'm sorry, this year on the Kings of Compromise. Back to the Bible. Let's get to verse six. He made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth was 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment. Even the hall of judgment, it was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell, this is verse eight, in the outer court of the back wall was like was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. So what we're seeing now, again, that Solomon not only prioritizes himself, but he equally prioritizes the dwelling of Pharaoh's daughter, whom he married simply to maintain peace through a marital alliance with his greatest foreign uh, threat. You know, you, you marry the, 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 the adversary's daughter so that he won't invade his daughter's country. <laughs> that is what's happening. So Solomon, as beautiful as he made God's house, he made his own house beautiful and bigger, and then he made a house for his foreign wife. You see again, we're going to get to a passage in First uh, Kings chapter 11 where Solomon, uh, right here in verse, uh, I love the Lagos cam, where Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So this is again, chapter 11 is the fruit of, of a root that took place way back here in chapter seven of first Kings take what I'm saying to you guys is, is take care of the flesh now 
so that it doesn't take care of you later. Ooh, somebody should tweet that. That was good. Oops, there I am going prideful myself right now in this teaching. Sorry, everybody. Verse nine, let's continue so I don't make any more mistakes myself. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the opening, from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. I mean, we're just, we're just called here to see the immense size of Solomon's palace and, and his wife's palace. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. Quick, quick, quick question, everybody. You liking the Logos Bible Cam better than the physical Bible Cam? I don't know. I'm starting to like this Logos Bible Cam better. Let me know in the comments below if that's what you think. Anyway, we'll take a poll. Um, so, 12 verses of Solomon's temple, again, Solomon's palace being built, the description being given to us in 12 verses, surrounded, and I'm saying this for the third time, by 77 verses describing God's house. What are we to take from that? We're to take simply this, that what we make important about our lives, God does not make nearly as important. The Holy Spirit inspired the writer of 1 Kings to only devote 12 verses to Solomon's palace and 77 to God's house. I read a commentary on this text. I wanted to quote it directly, just so you know, and I'm not taking credit for the thought myself. But Paul House of the New American Commentary writes about this text. He says, inserted between the building and furnishings of the temple, this palace construction story shows that Solomon's secular interests never cease and that his interests cost more than his religious one. And that is a very, very uh, good comment on this text. We are called to see that Solomon is allowing his secular interest interests to outweigh his spiritual interests. Can I tell you that that is the seed of a downfall? That is the seed of your life heading south. You've got to prioritize God. God must come first in your life. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not a suggestion. This is not God saying, gosh, I wish you'd put me first. This is not, not God saying, you know what? It's best if you put me first. No, this is, if you're going to be my people, I come first. If you're going to be my people, no other God saves, no other interest is primary, no other interest is, takes precedent over your interest in me. And hear me. To put God first is the most beneficial thing that you can do for yourself because he is the God who made you, who died for you, who rose for you, and who loves you eternally and can bless you. Putting God first is the most sane thing you can do in life. Putting anything before God is insanity. Now, let me put the picture here up on the screen because again, the text says it, but I love my Bible study, uh, my, my study Bible is the ESV, uh, study Bible. And it had this graphic here up that I'm going to put on the screen of the temple and where Solomon's house was and the forest of Lebanon was in relation to the temple. This is an artist rendering. And so up here, you see the temple is on the North. Uh, there's the altar to the Northeast, the sea to the Southeast. You see there's 10 water basins on the outside of the temple. You see the inner court and the Holy of Holies, that cube we talked about last week. And then you see Solomon's houses to the le to the south. It's got the stairway to the court. Then there's the um, all the rooms around Solomon's house. What do you see here? What do you see? You see uh, Pharaoh's daughter's house. You see the force of Lebanon to the south of that, the hall of the throne, the hall of pillars where Solomon would execute judgment. First, there's positives and negatives for the, the what Solomon builds here. Let me go over the positives first. First thing we see is that Solomon's house, King Solomon put his house next to the Lord's temple. And I think that is an important uh, positive because 
the king's heart had to be close to the Lord's heart. And that is a positive. So Solomon wants to be close to the Lord's house. As king, he says, look, I need God's wisdom to guide these people. And so I'm going to live right next to where God lives. Second thing positive is that Solomon's house is like the Lord's temple. Solomon patterns his house after God's house. They say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And so this is kind of like the imitation of Christ. If you consider that Christ is the final temple and the temple was a pre-image of Christ. So Solomon is doing that as well. And then thirdly, Solomon's house is the people's house. And what I mean by that is that the court is next to God's house for judgment. And the house of judgment, the king's judgment, is the place where people would come to for justice. So I don't know about you, but when I go to the voting booth, I want to vote for the guy who I think has a closer, or the girl who has a closer heart to God. Because I think that you cannot, I believe 100%, you cannot properly guide people if you don't have a heart for God who made people in his image, including you. And so, yes, the positives are he's close to God's house, he's like God's house, and he understands that if he's going to render judgment good, well for God's people, he's got to be like God and he's got to be close to God. Those are the positives. By the way, Solomon will write a, a psalm. It's called Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is a psalm that talks about the king needing justice or to give justice to God's people, and he prays for it in Psalm 72. Let me put this here up on the screen through the Lagos cam. Uh, Psalm 72, sorry, I'm in Psalm 71. 72 says this, this is a Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Psalm 72, one and two. Solomon is asking God for justice and righteousness to judge the people in righteousness. In other words, I, God, need your help to guide your people. I need your help to lead your people. And that is a very good thing. Uh, he also will write in Proverbs 20, verse 26, and I can't put this up on the screen quick enough, so I'm just going to read it to you. It's in my notes here. A wise king scatters the wicked like wheat, then runs his threshing wheel over them. So a wise king is necessary if God's people are going to flourish. There is just no debate about that. So again, back to the positives of Solomon's house next to the Lord's temple, like the Lord's temple, and a place to execute God's judgment for or on behalf of the Lord's people. Negatives, three, three of those. Number one, Solomon's house is much larger. So he has definitely put his house <laughs> higher in priority than the Lord's house. Number two, Solomon's house is, has required more materials than the Lord's house. It's an amazing thing how often that happens in our lives, especially as Americans. Before we tithe, we pay for everything for our kids. Before we tithe, we put the mortgage payment first. Before we tithe, we pay for almost anything and everything that we want or need in life, all the while forgetting or neglecting the person who should come first in life because he has provided everything for our lives. And Solomon is, again, sowing the seeds of prioritizing the glory of the king at the expense of the glory of the Lord. And this will, this will come back to bite Israel in the future. But, but his house is larger. It required more materials. And thirdly, his house took almost twice as long to build as the Lord's temple. These are the negatives of what we were seeing in the first 12 verses of 1 Kings chapter 7. But we're only 12 verses in. And like I said, this is a long, detailed, drawn-out chapter of the temple of the Lord. Now we're going to get into the part about the furnishings of the temple of the Lord. And we're getting into verse 13 here. Picking back at the story, it's almost as if the writer's like, yeah, oh yeah, Solomon built his house. It was huge. It was massive. It was beautiful. And it was actually more important to him than the Lord's house. Uh, but that's not really important. That's not what we hear. 
we're here to talk about the Lord's house and the temple and the furnishing of the temple, which point to the Lord's work in our lives. The Lord's work is bigger than our work, right? So this is what it's all about. Let's look at verse 13. It says this, And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all the work. Okay, now this passage here is meant to inspire us about a couple things. When God wants to get a project accomplished, he always has the wisdom and understanding and the skill available, and he usually imparts that into a man. He usually imparts that into a person. God calls men. God calls individuals. We, we want committees. God wants individuals to be raised up in the power of the Holy Spirit to do his work. And the Lord brought this guy all the gifts that Solomon would need. Solomon would administrate the, the building, but this guy would actually make it happen. Who is he? Well, the Bible says he is Hiram from Tyre. This is not King Hiram who donated the wood. We read about him in chapter 5. No, this guy was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So his father was from Tyre, a foreigner. His mother was an Israelite from the tribe of Naphtali. His mother is alive. His father is dead. And what we're called to see here is that even from a man with mixed heritage, God gives wisdom, understanding, and skill to make the Lord's house. This is a beautiful picture of what Isaiah 60 will talk about in that the nations will bring and glorify the Lord's house together. We are given here in this verse a hint, even in this small little moment in Scripture, a hint of the ultimate purposes of Israel. And that ultimate purpose is to bring all nations to beautify the house of God. If you are not a Jew and you are a Christian, you are already fulfilling this passage because you are of foreign ancestry. You were not sharers of the commonwealth of Israel. You are not a Jew by blood, but you've been brought into the house of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, the promises of Abraham through the blood of Jesus Christ, even though you are a Gentile. I am a Gentile myself. So this is a beautiful hint here in verse 14 that God chooses a man from a foreign nation. His mom was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile, and you were always counted according to your father's lineage in the ancient world. And yet he is the one that God chooses to beautify and decorate the temple. And today, the church is dominated by Gentiles. There are Jews in the church, but far more Gentiles. It's, again, the, the prophecy of Scripture has come true. Abraham's calling was to bless the nations, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and through him all the nations of the earth would come to know the Father. So he gives him wisdom. We need wisdom to build God's house, understanding, skill. These are, these are skills that only God can give. And you need these skills if you're going to build God's house. Um, then it says this, uh, it, he, that the Lord gave it to him. And I, I want to put this here up on the screen because what we're going to be asked to remember here is that when God originally creates the tabernacle in Exodus 31, God says to Moses, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, sorry, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones and setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So what God did in building the tabernacle, raising up Bezalel, what a terrible name, Bezalel, uh, he also now does in Hiram, raising him up with the same insight and knowledge and ability to beautify the physical permanent temple. And what I want you to see here is that both men were skilled craftsmen. One of the things that I get seriously distracted by when I'm browsing social media 
are craftsmanship videos. Anybody see these? Somebody takes clay and they make a pot or they tea, a tea kettle or something like that. Or somebody takes wood and then before you know it, they make this beautiful bench, this wooden bench, and, and you just see them. You know, I saw one, so somebody took um, cast barrels from whiskey, uh, distiller, from a whiskey distillery and repurposed them into a wooden bench for a park. It was the most <laughs> amazing video. And you get drawn in, you get sucked into these videos. Anybody watch this old house? I love this old house where they just beautify things and craftsmen come in there and beautify a building. It's, it's wonderful. And, and why are we attracted to that? We are attracted to that because that is the heart of God. God wants beauty in his house. He wants craftsmanship. He wants deliberate artistry. And he wants these things, I believe, in the church. The church should be representative of a beautifying God. The church should be beautiful. It should be well decorated. It should have uh, skilled people in the right places. It should blow away every theater house, every concert hall. It should replicate the glory of God in artistry and craftsmanship and beauty. There is not a single thing wrong with um, decorating, if you will, beautifying God's house with the arts, with skill with these kind of abilities because it represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should the Lord Jesus Christ be represented by terrible singing, crummy musicians, <laughs> um, a, a rundown building, and people not skilled for the task? Why? This is the Lord's house. I really, really drive this home in my church. We've got to find skilled people for these positions because we are not doing this for men. We are doing this for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he deserves our best efforts. And he also can provide the most skilled people. Amen. I'll get on a preaching tangent if I keep going on about that, but I'm going to move on just because I don't want to offend anybody. Let me put this, let me put this picture here up on the screen. Again, from the ESV study Bible of the temple, you'll see here what we're going to be talking about now as we get into the furnishings. And right off the bat, you're going to see there's a pillar here in the middle there's another one that has been cut down just for the sake of the illustration that replicates that on the left side of the entrance of the temple. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Actually, it's the very first thing that Hiram builds, these two pillars. So let's get into that when we go to the Logos Bible Cam in verse 15. Hiram, this is the he, the he of verse 15. Hiram cast two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits and the height of the other capital was five cubits. The lattices, uh, sorry, there were lattices of checker work uh, with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, now notice this, likewise, verse 18, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals were on the top of the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were the two, I'm sorry, were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice work. These were 200, so this is incredible. These were, there were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around and so with the other capital, he set up to, uh, the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called his name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called his name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus, the work of the pillars was finished. Lots of text <laughs> to describe uh, two pillars. And again, let's go back to 
the image. So lots of text for these two pillars, which is you know, kind of amazing to think about why is the scripture devoting so much time to describing these pillars? Well, they're, they're important. Uh, first off, we're seeing that they are structures that hold up the entrance. They're, they were at least to, to provide the illusion of holding up the entrance to the temple. And then the lattice work was to make it look almost as if it was like a chain mesh, a gate, if you will, and then decorated with pomegranates, 200 on each pillar, pomegranates, which is a very important fruit in Holy Scripture. So I opened up this episode with this guy in my hand. This is a pomegranate. The pomegranate has a long storied history in the Bible. Um, Hebrew scholars believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were pomegranate trees. Jewish scholars believe that. We Americans believe they were apple trees because we tend to interpret all the scripture through our American lens and we love American. Uh, we Americans love apple pie and apples are the American fruit, if you will. And so we just read into the text that it was an apple tree. It doesn't say it was an apple tree. It doesn't even say it was a pomegranate tree. But what I am telling you is that based on the topography and the, and the botany of the Middle East, which is probably where the uh, Garden of Eden was, there's a good chance it was a pomegranate tree. And the, a lot of Hebrew scholars believe that that's exactly what it was. The scripture also says that there were two trees in the midst of the garden. Let me go back because this is so important for you to see. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, look what it says. Uh, it says, Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Look at this. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two trees specifically mentioned in the Garden of Eden. This is very important because there are two pillars at the entrance to the temple, which is now a kind of new Eden where God and man would dwell together in peace. Remember, we talked about the cubic structure of the Holy of Holies, and that was pointing to the paradise of God in Revelation chapter 21 and also to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 because it was surrounded by four rivers and all those kind of things. This is, this is important for us to understand what God is speaking into his ancient people even through the decor of the temple. By the way, the priestly garments, one of the garments that the priests would wear, it was called the ephod. And at the bottom of the ephod were sewn into the fabric gold bells and pomegranates. This is Exodus chapter 28, 31. You can read about it yourself, but I want to put this picture up on the screen so that you see it. This is the garments of the high priest, and you will see around the trim of the ephod were golden bells and pomegranates. By the way, the golden bells, speaking of royalty, the pomegranates, speaking of the tree of life. Remember what, Israel, remember what Adam and Eve were barred from when God exiled them from the Garden of Eden. He said, I'm going to put the flaming torch there and the, and the cherubim to guard them from getting back into eating the tree of life because they already ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat the tree of life, they live forever, but they live forever with sin. Now, I talked about this last week. This is so amazing. I talked about this last week about how the worst thing that could happen for you is to live forever in the current sinful condition that you experience. Someday, we Christians, our hope is not to live forever. Our hope to, is to live forever without sin. That one day, sin will finally and fully be wiped off the earth and out of our lives and out of our heads and hearts and minds. Well, this week, 
Elon Musk tweeted out a tweet talking about that the worst thing imaginable would be to live forever. Even he attested the fact that we shouldn't be able to live forever in this state because we would destroy everything if we live forever in a sinful state. So God guards the garden that holds the tree of life, probably a pomegranate tree, and he guards them from coming in to eat that. Why? Because he's got a better fruit ready for them, a better fruit that he's going to provide for them. It is the fruit of his son, Jesus Christ. It is the one who is placed on the tree, the new tree of life, is the tree of death for our Savior, Jesus Christ, but also becomes a tree of life for us. By his stripes, we are healed, right? So the pomegranate, and this is, this is going to get good, I'm telling you, is a picture of Christ. It is a picture of Christ. A couple of things about the pomegranate from the uh, perspective of ancient Israelites and Hebrew scholars today. The pomegranate is one of seven agricultural plants listed in Deuteronomy 8.8. When God describes the land, he says it's a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, and honey. Seven agricultural products, one of them being the pomegranate. If you open up the pomegranate, it is, seven, uh, it is filled with red seeds, fleshless seeds, by the way, exposed seeds, if you will. Now, there is an estimate of how many seeds is in each pomegranate. There's always a difference, but most scholars, Hebrew scholars say there's 613 seeds, around 613 seeds in the pomegranate. Guess how many laws there are in the Torah? 613 laws. So the seeds inside the pomegranate represent the laws of Israel. They're red, which represents blood. They are, by the way, look at the shape. Let's just get it up close here. There's a, what do you, what do you look, what, when you see the shape on top of the pomegranate, what does that shape look like? Let's put it like that. Looks like a crown, doesn't it? The, the, the pomegranate is a crowned fruit. Isn't that incredible? And so again, we are, we're pointing not just to the law, but we're pointing to the fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ. Um, Song of Solomon 4.3 says that the pomegranate is a symbol of fertility and love. By the way, to this day in Israel, the, blo- the blossom of the pomegranate happens right around Rosh Hashanah. That is the new year for Israel. Israel's new year also is, aligns with their belief of when Adam and Eve were created. And by the way, Adam and Eve were crowned with dominion to have dominion, rule and subdue the earth. So, so this is a picture of Christ because Christ is the new Adam. Christ is the final Israel. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Christ was crowned king and is king and Christ fulfilled all the law. I mean, it is so cool to think about what the pomegranate represents. And we also know a couple more facts about the the pomegranate. It is a superfood. It is filled with antioxidants. It helps cleanse your arteries. It keeps your blood flowing. New studies have found that pomegranates actually fight Alzheimer's and other neurological diseases. And researchers from the University of California found that pomegranate juice actually slows the growth of cancer, particularly prostate cancer in men. Science Daily, pomegranate juice components could stop cancer from spreading. Uh, This is from the Cleveland Clinic. The health benefits of pomegranates, they're high in antioxidants. They benefit prostate health. They promote heart health. Uh, I even saw some articles where they stop hearing loss. There is untold benefits to this fruit. And no wonder why it was on the tree of life, right? No wonder why this this is the fruit that God perhaps put on that tree. Let me do one more thing about how it points to Christ with this camera is look at the skin 
of the pomegranate. Just what are you seeing when you see the skin? Bruises. Look at there. Stripes. Piercings, if you will. And of course, red. And then somewhat of a fleshly color interspersed amongst the red. And you, you just kind of get the picture of Christ beaten and whipped. And maybe this is what his flesh looked like after he had been scourged. Remember, Pilate orders him scourged to appease the crowd and they, they aren't satisfied. And then he finally hands him over to be crucified. So you have this beautiful fruit that represents the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it adorned the two pillars that were guarding the entrance to the temple. Friends, this is why I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. You cannot align all these facts in your natural self. Only the Holy Spirit could do this. Only the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, the two names of the pillars, did we read that? I think we did read that. It is in verse uh, 21. He called the pillar on the south, Jachin, and the pillar on the north, Boaz. Jachin means he will establish, and Boaz means strength. By the way, Boaz is David's great-grandfather. So, remember, he married Ruth. So, you have, he will establish, and strength as you come into the temple. This is what God is going to do in your life as you approach him through the true temple, Jesus Christ. He will establish your life. He will strengthen your life. Let's go on in the text because I am really deep in the weeds here with time. Verse 23, then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from brim to brim, five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits com uh, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows cast with it. When it was cast, it stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The sea was set on them and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like a flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths. Let me put a picture of that on the screen for you so you can see this sea here, uh, a massive structure holding about 10,000 gallons of water. The 12 oxen, oxen a symbol of strength. Again, three oxen facing four different directions. Three plus seven, three plus four equals seven. So you have this calm sea that you would see this calm sea, S-E-A, that you would see S-E-E -E, on the way into the temple, a 45-foot circumference. It is a picture. It is a picture of the Lord because the Lord is the God of the seas. He, he brought the dry land out of the sea. He divided the sea for the Israelites to walk through the sea. When we are baptized, we go through the waters of baptism. And, and the ancient Israelites and the Bible actually considers the sea a symbol of chaos and disorder. And what God continually does with the sea is bring order and, and control to the uncontrollable. Uh, Psalm 89 verse 9, you rule the raging seas. When its, wave rise, when its waves rise, you still them. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus calmed the waves. Every time you went to temple, you would see the calm waters, a picture of God's sovereignty over the elements of the world. All this is supposed to teach Israel about their Lord, about Jesus. When Jesus walks on the water, he, he kind of rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith because they didn't realize that he was God in human flesh. He was God the Son. He was the Lord of heaven and earth and the one who calms the sea and the one who is represented in the temple. You have this beautiful picture of Christ in the calm waters as you approach the uh, place of worship for ancient Israel. Now notice also 
Verse 27, it says, He made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, four cubits high, three cubits high. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels. The panels were set in frames, and on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The, the supports were cast with wreaths at each side. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round, as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening, there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round, and the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel, their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands, and on the top of the stands, where there's a round bath band, half a cubit high, and on the top of the stand, it stay, uh, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surface of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lion, palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. Uh, this is a stand for a bronze basin. He makes ten of them. Uh, it would be moved around, so accessible. Again, three and four numbers all over the place. Notice that it was decorated with what? With palms and lions uh, and cherubim. These are symbols. The, the, the palm tree is a symbol of peace. The lion is a symbol of strength. The cherubim is a symbol of guardianship, uh, protection. So all of these things are decorating these 10 bronze basins that would be around the uh, temple area. Uh, now let me put this up on the screen so you can see what it would look like. This is the bronze basin that would sit on top of the bronze stand. I'm going to read verse 38. Uh, so as you can see it, and he made 10 basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths. Each basin measured four cubits, and there was a basin for each of the 10 stands. And he set the stands five on the south side and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Okay, so what what was the deal with this? This piece of uh, furniture that went into the temple. And again, if we go back here, let me see if I can find it. I want to show you uh, where that was in relation to the main sea. You can see there, uh, not all of them, but there's four there that are aligned in the south part of the temple. And then on the other side, you would see there was five basins on the north side of the temple. Ten basins of washing. And why? What is the purpose of these basins? Very simple. These basins are pointing to the fact that God wants us cleansed. He wants us cleansed as we approach his presence. And 10 on both sides is so that wherever you're coming from, you can get cleansed. You can get forgiveness wherever you're coming from. That is the beauty of these basins. That's what the washing of the water means. That's what baptism means. Uh, what God is saying through these 10 basins surrounding the temple is, I want to make it as easy as possible for you to come and be with me. But in order to come and be with me, you need to be cleansed. So let me make it easy for you to be cleansed from your sins. This is a beautiful promise for us. That's why 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we, make our, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, in order to be cleansed, we have to confess our sins. Christ paid the final sacrifice for our sins to be cleansed from us. We can get cleansed as simply as confessing our sins. God wants to make it as easy as possible for us to do life with him, to come and be with him at all times. How? Through the confession of sin 
and the washing of water through his word and the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus on our lives and on our souls. And this is what God has made possible for us. Okay, now we get into some uh, instrumentality in the temple. Verse 40, it says this, Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for Solomon on the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that are on the top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, 10 stands, 10 basins of the, on the stands, and the one sea and the 12 oxen underneath. Then he says this in verse 45. Now the pots, the shovels, the basins, all the vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze in the plain of the Jordan. The king cast them, notice this line here in verse 46, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathon. So what he did was he made a cast in the mud. They hardened the mud, and then they poured the bronze in to cast the objects. So they would all be the same. But it's also a picture of how the temple would come from where? From the ground. Again, where does human being, where, where does humanity come from? From the ground, from the dust, from the clay of the earth. Jesus Christ also comes from us, comes through the human race, into the human race as God the Son, that God would, put, be, would be put into the shape of the clay of the earth, the man, the, the God-man. This is all, these are all hints at Jesus here in chapter 7 of 1 Kings. Uh, verse 47, and Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. Bronze was not particularly expensive or valuable in the ancient world. It was, it was just a very functional, very pliable material. And there is some debate as to how bronzy actually was compared to our modern day bronze. But the point of the matter is it was a functional, uh, very decorative metal, and it was used uh, very functionally in the temple. God's king, God's temple should be beautiful, but it should also be functional. I think, I think there is some, something to be said for you cross a line at some point where the, the house of God and even your building structure, your church structure crosses a line from beautiful to it's no longer functional. Like you, now it doesn't actually create community. It impedes community. You're, you think about when you go to some Catholic churches, some, some high, we would call these high churches, the architecture, everything high and, and gorgeous and ornate and beautiful. I mean, second to none in terms of beauty, but functionality, creating community, creating fellowship, creating commonality. You cross a line there. So the, the house of God was to be beautiful and at the same time it was to be functional. Okay, let's finish up the text here so that we can make some final points and get to the end of this episode. <laughs> so Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of presence, the lampstand of pure gold, five on the south and five on the north, uh, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense and fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the inmost parts of the house, the most holy place, and the doors of the nave of the temple. So a couple of things that we're supposed to see here, the golden altar, this represents prayer, uh, the golden table for the bread of presence. This represents God's nourishment or God's um, provision for us. Uh, every day they would bake 12 loaves of bread and put it on the table. Uh, 12 bread loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Then the lampstands, and you see there's 10 lampstands. There was, there was one lampstand in the tabernacle, but this temple is so big they needed 10. So he makes 10 lampstands, and the lampstands were you know branched out with the, um, the, the branches to look like a tree because what was in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. And Jesus is our true tree of life, who is also the one who provides light uh, to us and for us. 
And then you have the doors and the most holy place. And we're going to get to the ark next time on the deep dive. But that is a picture of the instruments or the furnishings of the temple. The last text in chapter 7, verse 51, it says this. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, dedicated the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Whew. Okay, that's through the text. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, do we, do we uh, take great things away from this text or not? Well, that's what my job is here for. That's why I'm here. I want to help you take great things away from this very complicated, very detailed passage of Scripture. The key verse, of course, is the first verse. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. And the reason why that's the key verse is because, again... We're seeing a warning in the human condition. We can get so distracted and so attracted to extravagance by the things in our own lives that it takes us away from the most important thing in our lives, that is God, God's life in us and through us. Doing life with God is the most valuable thing in your life. And so I want to make this point. The house of God is where God puts his attention, and so should we. Again, 12 verses of chapter 7 are devoted to Solomon's expensive, ornate, large palace. 39 verses after that are dedicated to the furnishings, the utensils, the wash basins <coughs> of the Lord's house. And 37 verses or 38 verses before it are dedicated to the structure inside and outside of the house. The point is this. And, and by the way, Solomon's house will never be rebuilt. The temple will rebuilt, be rebuilt not once, not twice, but ultimately some people think a third time at the end time. But twice up until our time, the temple has been rebuilt. Solomon's palace is nowhere to be found. No one goes to ancient Israel today and visits Solomon's palace. We, uh, most people go and visit the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, the last remaining wall of Herod's temple, which was the second iteration of, of the temple. So you, you have a clear picture here in chapter 7 of 1 Kings. God puts his heart in his house. So should you. You want your life blessed. You want your life strengthened. You want your life pure. You want your life um, anointed and protected. Put your heart into God's house. One of the rebukes of one of the latter prophets, uh, Malachi chapter one, it talks about this, that uh, the people were coming to the temple, but they were putting it second on their list. He says in verse six of Malachi one, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord. You priests despise my name. You say, how have we despised your name? He says, by offering polluted food on my altar. How have we polluted you? They say, by, and he says, by saying that the Lord's temple may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is, not that, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is saying, look, you're not treating me the way you need to treat me. You're not putting me first in your life. And it's going to cost you. And it does cost ancient Israel. They are destroyed shortly after Malachi writes these words. It only, I, I want to repeat this. The most beneficial thing that you can do for your life is to put God first. For your family, for your children, for your marriage, for everything about you, the most beneficial thing that you can do is put God first. Keep God's house first. It blesses you. Let me, let me share some scriptures with you about that. Psalm 82, verse, 84, verse 2. My soul longs and faints for the courts of God. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So in the house or in the courts of God, there is joy. 
Verse four of Psalm 84. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. There's blessing in the house of the Lord. How about verse 10? For in a day, of your, a day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So, so there is a blessing. There is a joy. There is a benefit to being in the house of the Lord, to making God's house. And by that, I mean the church, your family of God, your priority. Psalm 65, verse four. Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. He shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There is no better thing for you to do in your life than to honor and put first God's house. In the house of God is the true fruit of life, the tree of life, Jesus Christ, that provides for you, strengthens you, protects you, upholds you, and builds you. That's talk about it. Let's finish off the episode by tapping into some important truths. So simple truth for your life is this. Beware of distraction and extravagance. It is so easy to let minor goals take the place of God's house in your life. It is so easy uh, when you're young to let finding love take the place of God in your life. It is so easy when you're married to let your kids take the place of God in your life. It is so easy when you're sick to let health and well-being take the place of God in your life. Uh, God must be first. He has to, and when he is first, we don't miss out on a thing. It's when we don't put him first, we miss out. God does not need us. We need him. So it's not like I'm saying, put God first because you know, the old guy up in heaven, he really needs you. No, no, no. He doesn't need a thing. You need him. So you not putting him first does not detract from him. It detracts from you. There was a man who came and met Jesus. He was a rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. He asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? He says, keep the commandments. And then the man says, okay, well, which one of those? And Jesus, he responds with the, the second table of the law. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Those five laws refer to our relationship to um, others, right? He leaves out covenant because I think that this man also coveted. The young man was all excited. He said, wow, I've been doing those things. I, I, I've been doing those things since I was a youth. But what do I still lack? Do you see what he says here? He says, I... I I've been doing the moral stuff. I'm still missing on something. I'm still missing something in my life. What would what, what I still lack, Lord? That's a very important question. When you don't put God first, you are the one that lacks. What does Jesus say? If you would be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now look at the response. The young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The point here that Jesus is making, firstly, is it is so easy to live a good, upstanding, moral life and not have God first in your life. And you will still be lacking and you will miss out on the most important reality of your life, eternal life with God, joy in God's presence, joy in God's house. It is so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get pulled away from the Lord by life, by the reality of life, by the things that life demands of us. And when we put anyone other than God first in our lives, it is not God who suffers. It is we who suffer. The house of God is the place where God dwells and then God provides. Let me just recap the seven key furnishings of the temple that this chapter First Kings chapter seven unpacks. Interesting number there um, on the screen. The place of God's dwelling, you've got the bronze pillars. They 
point to a place of strength and certainty. Joaz, uh, Jacob and Boaz. Uh, <clears throat> the pomegranate, a place of healing and wholeness. The bronze sea, a place of God's sovereignty. He is sovereign over the seas. What is uncontrollable is controllable under God's sovereignty in our lives. The bronze basins, a place of cleansing from sin and impurity. The bronze altar, a place of prayer. The, the, the table of presence, a place of sustenance and fullness. The lampstands, a place of light and illumination. This is what God provides for us in his house. Strength, wholeness and healing, sovereignty and calm, cleansing, prayer, communication with him, sustenance and illumination. Come to the house of God. It is a beautiful, glorious, wonderful benefit to your life. So the last time I'm going to share this, what does wisdom look like? We talked about this already up through the first six verse chapters of First Kings. Now we're going to add one last um, element of what wisdom looks like because Solomon did, did all this through the wisdom of God. So we talked about it's selfless, it's serving, it's giving, it's administering, it's discipling, it's communing with God. And lastly, it's prioritizing God. That is how to live a wise life. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. And I say this to you because you are mine. I have bought you. I've redeemed you. I've brought you close to myself and I've made you new people. And if you're going to live holy before me and with whole life before me, I come first. And there is no other option. Not for God's people. You can look at the world. You can see people seeming to get away with it and getting blessed because they don't put God first. They're not his people. If you are a Christian, you are his people. And that means he's first in your life because you're the one that benefits from it. That is the episode, everybody. I am so glad that you have been with us thus far. Support the channel, if you will. Tim Hatch Live, hashtag, or timhatchlive.com slash support. And again, you can see the gifts that we're giving, the free digital copy of my first chapter of the next new book coming out, Ending, em Ending Emptiness, or the monthly donors. I call you Dependables, the free copy of the book. 10 Questions with Tim is soon to be back the first Thursday of the month. We are only a couple of weeks out from that. If you would do me a favor and like and share this video or subscribe, either way, next week I will be back on Tuesday at 7.30 with the deep end content. But it's Thanksgiving week, and so go and enjoy family and fun and fellowship and food and football and stop freaking out about the world. That's why. No deep end this week. Just deep dive. And what did we receive from the deep dive today? Put God first, and you'll be blessed. And I pray that that is a reality in your life. God bless you. Have a great night. Uh -huh.